rather than paying reparations like in terms of slavery and so on, it is about the transfer of low carbon technologies to enable the global south in a way to leapfrog and not have to go through the dirty coal oil based development stage that northern countries did. Welcome to another episode of Chatter, a podcast from The Gist, with me, Josh Hamilton. Professor John Barry of Queen's University Belfast was my guest on today's show. John was my favourite professor while I was at university. I took his class on the politics of sustainable development and was almost immediately captivated by his passion for green politics. It was a real pleasure for me to get to interview him for the podcast, and I hope you enjoy his take on the global climate movement and our transition to a greener and more sustainable economy here in Northern Ireland. If you haven't already and you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list. And don't forget, my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. You'll find the link in the description below. So here's Professor Barry. Do you prefer John or would you prefer Professor? Oh, God, no, John. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, welcome to the show anyway. Thanks thanks for agreeing to, to come on the podcast. My pleasure. Uh, so, I, I mean, I'm not going to waste any time with, with small talk. So um, is, is, is a global climate movement completely impossible these days? Um, like we've had Paris... And it doesn't seem to have changed anything. We had Kyoto 20 years ago, and that's been completely ignored. Um, like, do we need to stop relying on these big international agreements to, to deal with the, the, the climate crisis and, and sort of start focusing on like individual communities or, or our own sort of country? Uh, well, I mean, it's an old green uh, saying about acting locally and thinking globally. And absolutely, while we need... Uh, you know, agreements at the global level, as you mentioned, the Kyoto Protocol from 1997, the Paris Agreement of 2015, they've not really instituted the step change necessary. In my own view, uh, two individuals, again, I'm, you know, being a bit stereotypical, but two individuals have done more than those two agreements. The first individual is Greta Thunberg. <laughs> the second one is Sir David Attenborough. And actually, that, that more people-focused grassroots mobilization, whether it's Extinction Rebellion, whether it's the youth strike for climate, or whether, you know, we've had David Attenborough recently on Radio 4, of all places, you know, mm. uh, talking that capitalism is the, is the root cause of our crisis. And you don't get that type of analysis in, you know, the Paris Agreement and so on. So my own view as a longtime student of this, over 30 years, we do need our... Uh, our political systems to really get their heads around this and design, you know, proper legislation. But we should never completely trust them. We're always going to need citizen mobilization. I'm certainly more of the view, and I'm getting actually more radical the older I get, which is the opposite of how you should be going politically, (laughs) is that we're going to need a lot more nonviolent civil disobedience because, in my view, the current liberal democratic political system globally, it's not broke. It was made that way. It's it's radically insufficient for what we need in terms of addressing the planetary emergency. So 
The climate and ecological crisis is also a crisis of our democracies and particularly uh, a globalized world, you know, based upon the exploitation of the global south or the global north. We, we cannot have any credible climate policies without climate justice. And that isn't going to come from these negotiations. I mean, just to finish for your listeners, in case they didn't know, the last uh, conference of the parties, uh, the COP, as they're called, this is where we have these international climate agreements, it ended in disaster in Madrid, and it floundered on the issue of the refusal by the global north, particularly America and Europe, who are the world's largest historic emitters, uh, that's now the cause of current climate breakdown, they refuse to accept what's called loss and damage, that countries in the global south are now suffering, you know, inclement weather, typhoons, rising sea levels, not for anything they've done, but what we've done in the global north. And unless we address that issue, and that's, that's not going to, uh, you know, resolve the climate crisis, unless we see grassroots mobilization, particularly by citizens in the global north. Mm. Do you think that that it's like there's there's OK, there's there's obviously disagreements in, in economics as to like how much money is really available to spend on on things that, that we find important. You know, the it wasn't available. You know, the, the phrase the magic money tree, you know, got thrown around a lot the last few years. But um is is it worthwhile for the 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 global north who are the the world's like largest polluters still to spend money like reimbursing for the sins of our forefathers instead of spending it on gr- greening and decarbonizing our own economies like surely that would be a better use of the funds no well absolutely and and just on the magic money three three um why is there always money for war and not for the NHS? Mm. I mean, we should never forget that the issue is not the lack of money, particularly for sovereign currency countries like the USA and the UK. It's slightly different in the Eurozone. There is no reason at all why the USA and the UK cannot invest now in a green recovery program while also providing low cost, low carbon technology to the global south. I think rather than paying reparations, like in terms of slavery and so on, it is about the transfer of low carbon technologies to enable the global south in a way to leapfrog and not have to go through the dirty coal oil based development stage that northern countries did. But it's interesting that um, former Prime Minister Theresa May used that phrase modern, sorry, the magic money tree. And it almost echoes uh, a growing progressive finance platform called Modern Monetary Theory, MMT, Magic Money Tree. And I'll call me cynical. <laughs> it's interesting that the same language was being used by, by Theresa May to essentially prevent uh, what I think has been lost on Vicky progressives and the left for so long, that when you have a sovereign currency issuing government like the UK, it is not the, the model is not of a household. In a household, you and I, we've got to earn money and then we spend it. This is not how state finance works. It's never an issue that actually you need to raise taxes or to implement austerity to engage in counter-cyclical investment programs. And I think that's what she was doing, is to prevent that the Bank of England, when it raises debt, or, the, or it's essentially the government owing itself money. Uh, and, and how difficult is that? I mean, that's maybe a separate podcast, but I'll just ask your readers to go and look, our listeners, you know, modern monetary theory is very similar to the modern money too. Mm. 
I'd never, I'd never heard anyone compare the the acronym MMT. That's brilliant. Um, so you would consider it the 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 climate justice movement to be less about like physical reparations and more about using our more advanced technological and research capabilities and our resources that we can pump into universities and science departments and. And, and research facilities and, and providing the technology that's required to decarbonize the entire world economy and then passing that on. Yeah, I would also include the um, radical change in international protocols to extend refugee status to those displaced by climate. Uh, and again, that has been heavily resisted by countries in the global north. At the moment, you cannot turn up at George Best International Airport and say, hi, I'm from Kiribati. That's a small uh, Pacific Island state that's been threatened that it's going to disappear in the next couple of decades. You can't claim refugee status uh, because of the protocols for refugee status were founded in the 1950s to do with human threats like totalitarian systems. So for me, it would go a long way in terms of recognizing the importance of climate justice if there was um, this transfer of technology and much greater cooperation amongst all nations across on, on, on the planet. But particularly, we have people in sub-Saharan Africa and other parts of the world that have literally nowhere else to go. And if you read the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change projections, we are looking at hundreds of thousands of people who will have nowhere to go. I mean, the Syrian refugee crisis in the Mediterranean was only, uh, you know, um, the first part of what, what what's ahead of us. And, you know, without going into too much detail, the Syrian crisis was in part to do with the drought that they had, uh, partly exacerbated by climate breakdown. So we're already beginning to see this issue of people being forced to leave where they can no longer live. And therefore, what is the responsibility of rich, affluent countries? Let's not forget that. Oh, yes, it's badly distributed even within our own societies. But these countries have the resources to be able to uh, accommodate displaced people and I would say, it, even from a real politic point of view, you don't have to be a bleeding heart liberal like me, is to see that if you don't want to see other people coming to borders and drowning off Lesbos and Italy and so on, invest in these other countries, in the Middle East, in Africa, to enable people to have decent ways of life uh, by investing in, in technology transfer. So I think you can have a moral argument for this, but also a real politic one, uh, if, if you want to use that one as well. Hmm. Yeah, that's definitely something I wanted to, to get on to. Um, something that I, I really, really struck me um, when reading uh, the, the Uninhabitable Earth, um, which is truly like both terrifying and wonderfully succinct in, in sort of summing up the, the problems like A, with trying to predict what's going to happen. Um, and then also focusing on like simply if we consider the costs and problems uh, that we've already sort of caused due to uh, yeah due to climate change that that we can the something that he lays out is just the the cost even of the damage that's currently being done year on year and and the just the, the unbelievable cost that he suggests that like if we do nothing that there will be no economic growth after about the next 15 years, because we will be spending so much, re so many resources just defending ourselves from the onslaught of like, re like increasingly extreme weather. So would yeah. you, would you consider 
Like, uh, why do you think that's that's not really ever made as an argument? Because, like you said, we, you know, we hear you, we hear the the bleeding heart liberal case all the time. So, why do people not make the financial argument? Do you think it's because the people who are making the 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 sort of more compassionate case don't consider that to be a good reason? Or uh, you know, well, what do you think? Uh, I, no, I'll copy that. I mean, um, it's partly to do with time horizons that the financial, political system, economic system is looking at, you know, quarterly returns. And what we're talking about now is at least decades long planning ahead. The one bit of the financial architecture of the world that's been on this for quite some time is the insurance industry. I mean, if you ever come across a climate denier, of which sadly there are many, particularly in this part of the world where I live in Northern Ireland, you say, listen, forget about the science, because clearly you don't believe in, in science. What are some of the world's largest reinsurance companies like Lloyd's of London, Swiss Ray, Zurich Ray? These companies are not bleeding heart liberals. They're eminently capitalist and so on. But they can see the insurance premiums, the, the, the loss and damage, to use that term in a different context that I used a moment ago, as we go into more extreme weather events, is going to, as you say, begin either to compromise radically or indeed wipe out any orthodox GDP growth in, in the future. So just look at what these companies are saying. You could also look at, again, he's just left the, the governor of the Bank of England, uh, Mark Carney. He's been making the argument that, you know, uh, particularly things like not just climate risks, but also if you're invested in oil, this could become a stranded asset in the years ahead because you simply won't be able to use the oil to burn for energy. So if you've got your pension scheme or investments in in these stranded assets, that's an extreme financial risk. That has been now made, um, and I think it's becoming more prominent in, in our public um, discourse, that actually there's a financial reason. And just to finish, the reason for this is very simple. You fix the roof when it's sunny, because it's cheaper. If you wait till it's raining, it's already far too uh, costly. Um, at the immeasurable, uh, potentially, you know, devastating effects on your economy, never mind your, your, uh, you know, your well-being and, and so on. So my sense is this is beginning, the, the penny is beginning to drop. But again, we have to also face there are vested interests. If you're an oil executive, are you going to simply fall on your sword and say, yeah, that's it, we're going to retire and go out of business in a couple of decades? You're going to fight tooth and nail. Because we know this, the oil industry in particular spent decades in developing junk science to confuse people around whether climate change was what was real or not. We cannot uh, expect they're simply going to go, um, you know, without a without a fight. But I do, I do, I do discern politically. I think the popular mobilizations I mentioned a moment ago, whether it's Greta Thunberg and the young people, even the popular consciousness of the likes of David Attenborough, we, we have reached a tipping point. Add into that then the pandemic, where I think many people have realized that maybe the pandemic is a, is a warm-up act for how we deal with the climate crisis. It doesn't mean to say that we're, you know, we're on our way, but we certainly be, we've begun uh, the first in my view, tended the steps towards a, a green, low-carbon economy. Mm. Like you mentioned, you mentioned how the the pandemic might have changed things. There, uh, there's there's part there's there's part of me at the moment that that really wishes that, like the the science on how effective like locking down a country is or on how effective masks are in preventing the spread of the disease is nowhere near as settled as as the climate science, and yet. 
you see the DUP like up preaching the the, the importance of listening to the science, and, and part of me would, is just thinking, is this gonna change? like the genuine psychology of how people view it because like this is a threat that's coming for all of us it's not coming for you know the the vulnerable the the over 65 the immunosuppressed um or the 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 sort of small number of people who 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 seem to have been like really badly hit out of nowhere with covid this is something coming for all of us so do you think that the, the, the pandemic and the lockdown will have changed like our, our governments or like society psychology in, in how we listen to like threats that scientists are telling us about? I would like to hope so. And the fact I just recently um, uh, produced with, with the BBC here, BBC Radio Ulster actually aired on, on Saturday on this very topic about the lessons from the pandemic for dealing with the climate emergency, you know, Think of the ways in which you've had politicians. You've mentioned some there yourself. You know, we're going to listen to the science. We're going to follow what the medical evidence is. You've got to say, well, wouldn't it be great if they listened to the climate scientists for the last couple of decades telling us that our ecocidal growth-orientated capitalist system was bringing us towards, you know, a very sticky outcome for many people. So I do think there might be a renewed um, support for a science-based approach um, I actually also think that maybe scientists themselves haven't been more public. I know they're not particularly given to making uh, political statements, but uh, increasingly there are a number of climate scientists who are, who are just fed up with every year diligently providing the evidence, giving it to governments and then nothing happening, uh, which has been happening for far too long. On the, on the other side, though, the difference between the pandemic and the, and the climate crisis is that the climate crisis isn't really impacting white, affluent Western countries in the same way the pandemic is. We can see in our own societies around us now, whether it's Belfast or Berlin, people are dying around us. We can see that it's an immediate threat. Part of the problem from the psychological, cultural point of view is that climate breakdown, if you're not living in a low-lying area uh, or you're in a, you know, California or Australia, where there's bushfires that have, that have been exacerbated by climate breakdown, there it's very visceral. For many populations in the global north, climate breakdown is something they're watching on television. It's something that's happening somewhere else, and it's very diffuse. Human, human beings have evolved to be afraid of bitey things with teeth that can kill you. You know, you, 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 the psychological evidence is there. You put a gun in a baby's hands and the child will quite easily play with it. Yeah, you put a snake in front of, the, of a baby and the, and the child already knows, no, this is not a good thing to be around. <laughs> so we've evolved as a species to deal with immediate and present threats, like the pandemic, we can see it. Whereas the one of the issues with climate breakdown is it's abstract, it's science-based, it's slow. And these are difficult often for ordinary citizens to understand, not that it's impossible, particularly if you've experienced the climate-related, you know, uh, emergency event and so on. And that there, of course, it is that's the job of governments. The first job of government is to protect the people. We've known, to use kind of a medical analogy, that, you know, doctors have more knowledge and information about our bodies than we do. That's why we listen to them. And therefore, that's why we trust what they tell us in terms of, you know, John, don't be drinking too much or, you know, don't be eating too much fatty food, because look, it's bad for your health. In a similar kind of diagnostic way, that's what climate science and planetary science is telling us in terms of, you know, ecosystem analysis. The difficulty is governments have not been willing to listen because this will threaten 
you know, the fundamental ways in which we make things, how we produce energy. It will threaten in particular, uh, you know, just to relate on my own research, a growth-based capitalist system, which is simply incompatible with a habitable earth, to use David Wallace Wells's uh, perspective. That's very threatening to politicians. You know, just look at how, you know, a party that I'm still a member of and I was an elected representative of, the Greens, Look, look, you know, they don't do as well as other parties, partly because they're often seen as, you know, uh, the teetotaler party, <laughs> telling people, listen, this system that we have is just not going to be able to continue. I do think now that there's more um, an opening now to realize we need to move on to a different way of, of understanding progress. It can no longer be, just from a scientific point of view, endlessly increasing in some sort of cornucopian manner the material production of goods and services, we haven't got enough planets. And I think that's the science that's telling us, regardless if you're a capitalist or socialist, it doesn't matter. The planet is basically, you know, finite in its capacity to provide the resources. And particularly, just to finish, it's not actually the production of resources that's often the most important thing. It's the planet's capacity to absorb our pollution. That's what climate breakdown is. It's a pollution problem. Mm. And the planet simply cannot take any more carbon dioxide emissions in particular. Mm. So you, you kind of identified the, the current um, structure of our capitalist system as the the the, the sort of, I, maybe you would say the, the, the biggest obstacle to mm. our, yeah, to, 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 to transitioning to a more sustainable sort of model of, of, of living as, as humans on, on this planet. How, how would you go about trying to find some sort of metric or way in which to value things that don't necessarily have a monetary value and that, that are contributory to the economy, to how we live as humans, and and to maybe give ourselves a better understanding of, of, of the things that we do that don't have a, like an easy easily definable monetary value in order to sort of redefine our... our, our or idea of progress? Uh, well, it, I, I would not dethrone GDP completely. It's a very useful measure. So it's not about saying we have to abandon GDP. The issue is that GDP is no longer the only or the master metric. It's a bit like kind of Lord of the Rings, where Sauron creates one ring to rule everything else. We don't want, that's the problem with GDP. It dominates everything. The analogy I use, and again, it's contestable, but I think it's a workable analogy for how we measure progress is, and I speak now as a keen cyclist, although I do have a car myself. If you're driving a car, you don't only look at the speedometer. And that's effectively what GDP is, technically speaking. It's a measure in monetary terms of the rate of turnover of transactions in an economy in a year. It's a measure of speed, how quickly we're able to sell and, 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 and consume and so on. That's one measure. But unless you're a, a young male boy racer, that's not the only thing you should be looking at if you're driving a car. You're looking at the speed, you're looking at the, you know, the tire gauge, oil and so on. So in looking at progress in an economy, why aren't we looking at the Gini coefficient, for example? You know, the measure of inequality in a society and not just look at the, the, at the, the GDP tells us nothing about the distribution of that wealth and transactions in a society. Why aren't we looking at the public health impacts, the mental health impact? So we can come up with a dashboard of indicators and the OECD, you know, again, not a particularly radical organization. They are now 
progressing this idea that we need to move beyond a single focus on GDP to include other metrics. And some of these could be localized. Why do we need one size fits all measures of progress? I mean, here's a conundrum for Northern Ireland that it's very complex, but it's really interesting. Often Northern Ireland is seen as a basket case economically, overly dependent upon British state subsidies, doesn't have a really well-developed economy, you know, it doesn't have, you know, high levels of entrepreneurial skills or, you know, there's a whole range of orthodox measures which tells us that Northern Ireland is a basket case economically. Well, here's the thing. Um, David Cameron, former Tory uh, Prime Minister, introduced in, in the ONS, the uh, Office of National Statistics, he measured the well-being and happiness of the devolved nations. And ever since that it happened about six years ago, Northern Ireland is the happiest place in the UK. No so he's saying, hold on a minute. It's seen as the, you know, uh, you know, a basket case economically. We've got the legacy of the conflict and the troubles. We still have ongoing sectarian problems. And yet we are still the happiest. Now, we could be all deluded here. And that's the reasons why. But the reason why I mentioned that is that it begins to open up the question that maybe GDP measures of the economy are not the most important thing that contribute to human well-being. There are issues like you mentioned, and it's true. Northern Ireland has very high levels of social solidarity, very high levels of commitment to family and community and locality. It's not without its problems because it's often our community, not their community in terms of the us and, the us and them. But the point I'm getting at is that Northern Ireland, and I call this the Northern Ireland paradox, does it not indicate that orthodox GDP measurements are not the only or most important thing that determines the happiness or well-being of a population? That is super interesting that you put it in that in those terms. A couple of a couple of different things that I've come across recently have discussed how our sort of transformation into you know a new type of economy will have to focus almost almost exclusively on on rediscovering like the joys of of family and community and you know social interaction and 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 building those kinds of 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 you know family and and social relationships that that have kind of been strained in a lot of western nations by the the very sort of relentless mill of of 21st century life you know um caroline caroline Steele or carolyn Steele, sorry who who wrote the book Cytopia, which is just fantastic um about how food can change the world talk so much about how so many so many people's definition of a good life was friends and family and good food and 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 that's really interesting that you you say you've that northern ireland is the happiest place and and you kind of link it to the fact that we we do have like a very cohesive probably more so family unit and it's probably also helped by the size of the country because no one's ever that far away like you know you could move you could move town or city and still be you know inside an hour from each other you know you've, you've, uh, those... but also flips on its head the, the, the kind of orthodox economic views like one that i've often heard whether it's policymakers or indeed by some business people is that in northern ireland uh your typical entrepreneur is usually a small, medium enterprise, maybe family-owned business, and they'll reach a certain stage of their development, of production, of, of profit, and so on, and then they'll simply plateau out because they value then, you know, free time because they, get, they have enough money. So there's a sense of enoughness, not maximizing, whereas the typical kind of Anglo-American model is 
Why are you plateauing out? Should be going for more and so on. So you begin to get a sense that there is a a a life of prosperity and well-being when we introduce things like enoughness, sufficiency, not maximizing, you know, economic return and so on. Like for me, the 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 vista of this new low carbon, high human flourishing, low carbon economy are things like a three-day working week. You know, think about it. Why is it that for the last 200 years with the Industrial Revolution and all the amazing technological innovations we've had, we've ended up in the, in the sphere of production. We have less people working more, getting stressed and so on, rather than more people working less. In other words, how can we mobilize our productive capacities to maximize what I think is the real radical currency of the 21st century, meaningful free time? I'm not talking about unemployment. I'm not talking about the AI and robots coming to eat our jobs and so on. <laughs> it's how can we use technology to, you know, all the shitty jobs that have to be done. Can we not just outsource those to, to, to robots and actually keep the meaningful care, education, these things that can be done by robots, which are really about relationships. Mm-hmm. They're the things we, we, you know, we keep in terms of the productive sphere. Well, for me, again, maybe this is about you getting me back on to talk more about my own visions for this high human flourishing, low carbon economy. It is about things like the socialization of consumption. So more libraries, more laundromats, more use of light rail of those, you know, meeting our needs through collective collaborative forms rather than each of us having to individually buy. And also because I'm now a Marxist at heart, <laughs> it's about it's about democratizing production. You know, most of us live in democracies, perhaps who are listening to your, to your podcast. And yet if you have a job and not all of us do, but for those of you who do have a job, most of us live in despotisms. We live in non-democratic spaces which are orientated towards production. In other words, this growth orientation, maximization, robs us of potentially democratizing our workplaces, increasing human autonomy, even within the sphere of production. So for me, if you want to throw away line of which I'm quite fond of as a recovering politician, it's always good for media consumption. It's the socialization of consumption and the democratization of production. That's the area we need to start investigating. Mm. And what that means is, though, we have to go beyond carbon, go beyond growth, and in my own view, go beyond uh, capitalism. It's interesting that you use the words um, to like about maximizing human autonomy, because that's almost got a very libertarian streak in it as well. Um, but what do you think the where would you begin in Northern Ireland to to try and, and and move forward with this? Like, what what would be your kind of starting point on it? And actually, we've got a good news story in Northern Ireland that we've already started this, which is the um, the future for a low carbon sustainable world is the almost complete electrification of our lives. Everything, Josh, from how we how we uh, meet our food needs, how we heat our homes. You know, obviously, the use of uh, mobile communication technology like we're using has to become electrified. And that means for me, solar, wind and so forth. And Northern Ireland, at the last count, um, almost produced half of all its electricity from renewable energy sources. Really? It's quite remarkable. Yeah. So obviously, we want to get to, you know, 80, 90 percent. So I would start with um, electricity. And the reason why I say that is that once you change the energy system of a society, almost everything else changes. You know, your Massey Ferguson tractor can no longer be run off red diesel. <laughs> uh, how do we how do we fix nitrogen that increases the fertility of the soil? 
our food system has to change because we're moving away from carbon sources of energy, how we heat our homes, how we are traveling about and so on. So for me, the fa- any, any society in history or civilization, the energy system is absolutely crucial. I mean, people forget, even in the Second World War, part of the reason why Germany lost it, not completely, was that its supply lines became so long that it couldn't actually get the fuel to its tanks and, and the troops. Energy is absolutely crucial to war, and there's an example there, but it's also absolutely crucial to any sustainable transition. So for me, I'd start with energy, but once, but energy is not a, a single item. It then cascades into everything from transport to food to how we heat our homes and so on. And so once you change that energy basis of society, then you're really beginning to challenge and change you know, other parts of our, our economy and all without mentioning climate breakdown. So the bells, Sammy Wilson and the DUP should be absolutely behind this because, you know, I've not mentioned climate breakdown at all in that this is about jobs, investment in a new green economy, which has as a benefit, we're going to address the climate breakdown problem. Mm. That's amazing, though, that 50% of the, the electricity came from renewable energy. That's, that's, that's something to be proud of. I mean, there's there's also the there's there's a few arguments that the kind of efficient size, uh, like increasing the efficiency of, of a lot of our circuits and and the, how well insulated our homes are and, and things like that would would seriously reduce the amount of energy that we needed to produce as well and could probably help. Uh- pump those numbers uh, up yeah absolutely i mean the reality is the cheapest energy you have is the is the energy you don't use so we should even before we get into this discussion about renewable energy of which i'm quite passionate about what about energy efficiency energy conservation energy reduction and there's another element of the good news story from northern ireland for this green low carbon economy is hydrogen you know we have right bus um up in Ballymena, which was has been saved now by uh, the jcb group and joe bamford and they will be leading it's world leading um uh, hydrogen buses that they're going to be producing because hydrogen is no use for for cars it's better for you know um, lorries and heavy goods vehicles and northern ireland is actually you know beginning to uh, develop a, a cutting edge you know innovation uh, technology there and the reason why that's important is that often with intermittent sources of, of renewable energy, like wind, you know, the wind could be blowing at night. We're all asleep. Well, apart from young people like you who are out partying, so we're not, well, not going to use not that anymore. energy. <laughs> but, the, but the point is we're going to need battery storage um, to capture that energy when it's it's been created, when perhaps the, the, the demand isn't there. And hydrogen is a perfect way of uh, preserving that energy. It's one of the reasons why I'm a great fan of electric vehicles, of which I'm an owner. If you think about it, for 90% of the time we have a car, what's it doing? It's sitting there on the road in a parking bay. Whereas when my car is uh, sitting idle, I'm either um, charging it at home, and I, I've got solar panels on, on, on the roof here as well, so I'd like to think that some of the energy stored there is powering the car. Or, and again, this may change in the years ahead, Whenever I charge my car out on the on the public highway, it's free uh, through a government uh, scheme. But the point is that the, an electric car fleet or a hydrogen bus fleet, they become part of the nation's batteries. It's capturing and storing that renewable energy that may otherwise be lost. It explains, Josh, why a lot of people misunderstand when they're driving around the country, whether it's in Ireland or Britain, and they look at a wind farm and say, oh, look, 
it, it's windy and, and the blades aren't moving. The reason for that is the grid system is not able to take on board the extra um, electricity being produced. So they have to curtail the wind. Whereas if we move into this battery area, whether it's hydrogen or other forms of battery technology, we can store all of that, uh, you know, renewably produced electricity uh, to put to, to useful work. Okay, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't realize that was because the grid can handle it. There's no, there's not a way for us to to sell the electric on to the south or to to Europe, or is do we just not have the the kind of smart grid technology to do that? Well, we don't have the smart grid technology, and that is part of the transition. You know, our electricity grids in most parts of Europe and North America were designed for centralized fossil fuel production plants like Kilroot Power Station in Belfast Lock or Valley Lumford and so on. So they're centralized and the long transmission lines. So we do need to have smarter grids. Now, we have some other good news. My God, there's more good news on this podcast than I thought when you're talking about oh, this climate is great. and so on. We now have um, approval has been given by Minister Nicola Mallon for a north-south interconnector. So that means because we have an all-island electricity market that actually there is the possibility of now being able to sell and trade electricity. We need them to link that into a Europe-wide electricity system. And of course, Brexit has, you know, balls that up in some way in terms (laughs) of creating a pan-European, you know, grid system so that when the wind is blowing, you know, off the west coast of Ireland, that could be powering somebody's you know, washing machine in Berlin. We have the technology to do this now, but it does require an integrated pan-European-wide electricity grid system for which we have the basis of. But certainly it's, you know, now we have a north-south interconnect between Northern Ireland and the Republic. That will certainly help with the electricity security for Northern Ireland, no doubt about it. Yeah. And if anyone is listening to to this and um, has anything to do with that ridiculous um, Northern Ireland Scotland Bridge project, please tell them to to invest it in something a little better, like <laughs> like the, the the smart grid technology. Um, so, what are your thoughts on on Extinction Rebellion? Are they uh, necessary revolutionaries, or are they just a bunch of uh, you know middle class white hippies with too much time on their hands? Well, certainly you could uh, uh, d- describe um, a lot of green activists. And, it, you know, and as a member of the green movement, it, it is um, the case that there's a kind of a guilty, educated, urban, middle class, hipster feel. And it's always been um, a source of interest and sometimes um, disappointment for myself. Now, it has to be said that in Northern Ireland, where I cut my political teeth as a Green Party politician, we have a much more working class, if not outrightly socialist uh, analysis, which isn't about that uh, guilty middle class issue. And I have taken part in Extinction Rebellion actions, including um, we, we stopped the A2 for a, for a time as we cycled along it um, during one of the actions there uh, earlier on uh, this year. A, to raise the issue, we need more cycle lanes, make them popular. I do think there is an issue with um, the, the, the Extinction Rebellion's analysis can be too apocalyptic that turns people off. There's not enough awareness of how they need to connect with, uh, say, trade unions, working class communities. I mean, they had a disaster when some of their activists took over a tube, um, you know, uh, line and stopped people getting to work. You know, I understand I'm somebody who supports strikes. I'm a very avid trade unionist and so on, you know strikes and so on are disruptive but i do think there should have been more forethought into how that you know how can we make this attractive for ordinary people 
and not be seen, as you say, as, you know, hippies with too much time <laughs> on the hands. So while I, I, I admire their passion and I think they have absolutely raised the awareness, particularly with closing down London at various points and so on, they've got it on the agenda. It enabled, together with the confluence of Greta Thunberg and the youth strike, which I think has probably got more public support, given that it's young people, it's more media friendly, it's not as disruptive. But I do absolutely support non-violent direct action. My own views are going to need more of this. And I would love to see two organisations, one of which is particularly strong in Northern Ireland. The other one should be stronger. The one that is strong in Northern Ireland are faith communities. What would Jesus drive? Where are, uh, whether they're Christians, you know, Jewish, Islam, where are these religions who profess to say this is God's creation? The earth is not human. You know, we don't own it. We, we inherit it. And so what are they doing? And so I do think the faith communities have a particular obligation. But I also think the trade union movement, you know, there are no jobs on a dead planet. So what are the trade union movement doing on this area? So how can we see potentially a, a strange alliance? Imagine this of Extinction Rebellion, trade unionists and faith communities. They all should sh- share a similar perspective on this, obviously from different points of view. And that, for me, is the importance of uh, democracy, of debate and argument and so on. So I would support Extinction Rebellion as I would support the loyalist flag protesters as I, as I did at the time. So long as the loyalist flag protesters were engaged in nonviolent action, fill your boots. You have a, every democratic right to state what you want. Where it goes into violence, that's a, a really different issue. So for me, it's not to single out Extinction Rebellion for special condemnation. They are, uh, you know, expressing a science-based frustration. You know, if you if you look at the three demands of Extinction Rebellion, the first one is tell the truth. I love that. I don't think pop. Yeah, I, I don't think populations have been told, you know, the brutal reality of, you know, I'm not quite, you know, going down the path of giving out free copies of the uninhabitable earth because <laughs> I think that'd be far too depressing for people. <laughs> but to say to them that if we don't get our shit together, that in, within thirty years' time. We are looking at a very radically destabilized earth where it could tip into what's called runaway climate change, where regardless of what we do, the earth will shift into a new climate state. And the last point I'd make, and people misunderstand this, and sometimes Extinction Rebellion gets its messaging wrong, the earth isn't under threat. The earth has gone through five other great mass extinction events. We're currently going through the the sixth one. Mm -hmm. The earth is tough. It will just flip into a different evolutionary state which may not be particularly good for humans. So that's the issue. We're not saving the earth. We're saving a habitable earth that's fit for purpose for human civilization. Um, and that's the issue. Not, you know, the earth is, is well able to take care of itself. It'll shrug humanity off like a bad cold. Mm. I, I think you're, you're focusing on the on the religious, uh, sort of the failure of, of, of religious groups to kind of understand the 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 climate movement and and the fact that you know in in their eyes we're meant to be custodians of the of the earth um i i, I mean i think some of the, the 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 loss of that could be explained by the the kind of jungian idea that god is that which we hold up as our highest ideal and and we've kind of come to in in the sort of very neoliberal um money driven society we live in that 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 money and and profit has become that 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 kind of god and if that's at the expense of the planet that's kind of almost fair enough uh, if it's almost like you could use a kind of an architectural a- analogy 
if you look in our cities, um, often, you know, we, um, you can find out a civilization's or a culture's value system. What's its biggest buildings? In the past, it was cathedrals and churches and so on. Now it's Victoria Square, you know, a shopping center in the center of Belfast, mm-hmm. all shiny and glass and so on. And there's something around our, our societies have become orientated around us seeing ourselves as primarily consumers and also workers. But we've forgotten about those other dimensions of our lives, you could say, of being active citizens and, and, and looking after democracy and, you know, debating and really valuing, you know, democratic uh, politics. That, that Those citizenship activities for me are really important in discussing these issues. And this is not to denigrate we all need to consume, even myself as a as a vegan, you know, I know everybody has to consume. Life lives off life. But we, we can make choices as to do we want to eat flesh as opposed to, well, maybe having a little less of that and something more plant-based. And it's interesting on the on the dietary issue that it turns out that the a, a healthy diet for human beings in terms of physiologically turns out to be a healthy diet for the planet, which is le- basically less red meat. So if you're you're listening to this, if you want to do one thing that can actually help you and the planet is consider using less red meat in your diet. It's not saying to abandon it completely, but it's incredibly carbon intensive, incredibly, obviously, productive of animal suffering, um, but also is incredibly wasteful in terms of resources. And surely we can find ways of meeting our dietary needs without wrecking the planet. I mean, that's the key to all of these things. Can we have high quality lives that don't cost the earth? Well, that would be ideal. Are you familiar with the work of Graham Hancock? It's slightly off topic, but but it does make sense, right? So he was he's um he describes himself as a journalist, but he he has he was about twenty five years ago. He started he put out this book called Fingerprints of the Gods, and he basically sort of looked at all of the most ancient societies that or in civilizations that we know of in the world. And then looked at a whole bunch of their sort of artifacts, myths, monoliths, and went, they got this from somewhere. And over the past 25 years, he's kind of been more and more vindicated as to the fact that pre-Ice Age, or like before the last Ice Age, that there was some kind of civilization that spanned the entire globe. They have maps, and the the maps are are mind-blowing, that they have entire maps of the topology of Antarctica under the ice sheets like, like yeah like it's it's mind blowing right so th- th- this civilization is at least 15,000 years old and he believes that they managed to survive through the 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 catastrophe of the last ice age basically the entire length of it and he sees like humanity now as hang on let me get the quote i've got it right here it's one of the most beautiful things I, i've read ever i think and he's talking about how we as a species had a civilization that spanned the globe and and we lost it due to climate destabilization and it was brought about by um by two different asteroid impacts the first of which um basically triggered the last ice age and then the second of which ended it um and he basically talks about a lot of the the different sort of um ancient myths of floods and fire and he just says look this is this is what it was like it was them describing the events that happened in the kind of rebirth of of humanity and he says what is it it's almost as though we have awakened into the daylight of history from a long and troubled sleep 
and yet continue to be disturbed by the faint but haunting echoes of our dreams. <laughs> like that, wow. yeah, that doesn't belong in a book about like ancient history, but um, it, it's 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 really striking to me because it's 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 just like an absolute perfect illustration of what you talked about. Is like the Earth will survive, but humans had to go through a serious amount of like we barely made it through that period, and we had to go through that fifth mass, mass extinction while we were around. And like our survival is not guaranteed. The Earth's is like it will be here long after we are gone. Uh, Or or can anybody show me a civilization, an empire, a culture that that lasted forever? You know, every civilization we've had, whether it's the Aztecs, the ancient Greeks, the Romans, you know, it was a combination. And I encourage people to look up the work of Jared Diamond, who wrote a very famous book called Collapse how societies choose to fail uh, in terms of a combination of usually overexpansion, you know, growing socioeconomic inequality, the arrogance and overreach of elites often tied up with, um, you know, wars and, and uh, overconsumption, combination of ecological and social issues, political issues lead to collapse of previous civilizations. And the question for our current civilization, we call it globalism or capitalism or whatever, why on earth do we think that this civilization is going to last into the future? You know, we have to contemplate, like every other human civilization, it's fragile, it's contingent and so on. In fact, ours is extremely fragile and contingent because of inequality, long global supply chains. The fact that's the pandemic, to go back to that, the pandemic is probably the first disease of the Anthropocene in the sense of our globally interconnected world, means very quickly a disease that starts out in Wuhan in China suddenly goes global because of our global supply chain, air travel, and so on. Mm-hmm. But, but here the, the important point is to consider culturally and philosophically our, the vulnerability of our civilizations for you know serious disruption in the years ahead. And we have to contemplate, I'm not saying our societies are going to collapse tomorrow, but we are on the trajectory that we could see from previous historical examples. And the other author I encourage people to read is Joseph Tainter, who also, like Jared Diamond, has uh, been working on this idea of, you know, uh, societies makes, reach maximum complexity, then they overreach themselves to a series of, um, you know, interacting crises, energy, food, climate-related and I do think that, that that vulnerability is something we need to recognize. How can we make our societies less vulnerable? Well, the first thing we have to do is recognize that we are vulnerable. And, and unfortunately, our elites are of the view, particularly if they're US-related, um, either business people or policymakers, that somehow there will be a technology that will save us. Mm-hmm. There's an inordinate amount of faith in, in that religious sense of the term, I would say, of a technological solution to our problems, whether it's solar radiation management, serious government money being spent in the US and elsewhere on geoengineering the planet, that somehow we could manage the planet uh, in, in, in some sort of manner, which to me is absolutely science fiction. Like there's no demonstrable evidence that we can manage the planet. Surely what we should do is manage our relationship to the planet by reducing our demands on it rather than trying to extract it and then ending up finally with, to me, the, uh, you know, the nadir of this or the terminus of this thinking is the bow Elon Musk what was then to bugger off to Mars. <laughs> and you kind of say, it, it, but that's consistent. We wrecked this planet. 
we exhaust all its resources like some rapacious parasite, and then we bugger off to a different planet to do the same. And it's always these white, affluent tech heads that are pushing this agenda of inter- interplanetary, you know, colonization, rather than saying, you know, before we consider going leaving this planet, can we not try and, you know, sustain our lives here? Are, are, are we so dumb as a species? We can't figure out a sustainable way of managing. To again, to something I said a few times now, high quality human ways of life with low carbon ecological and climate impacts. That to me is the goal, not necessarily trying to go to to Mars. Mm. I like Star Trek, but to me, it's not. It's a nice diversion. It's not a serious program that we should consider for human society. Mm. I mean, the money could probably be better spent on uh, something maybe a little closer to home. But uh, one thing I want to know is that the IPCC reports, like their their apparently apocalyptic reports, also have like this monstrous amount of carbon sequestration, or is that the right word? Yeah, in yeah. in yeah. their models, so that they they oh, they yeah. have like faith in the next twenty yeah. years that we're just going to oh, invent yeah. this amazing I mean, machine that's going to suck uh, carbon out of the atmosphere. It, 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 I mean, it's an amazing assumption, even in the Paris Agreement. Um, in its modeling, there is an assumption like a black box of net zero emission technology, which we've not invented. So these these things don't exist, but it, it, they're kind of built into the model as a way of developing, you know, credible in inverted commas, you know, climate reduction scenarios. <laughs> so we have this 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 mythic faith in technological optimism. It's right to go back to where you began, Josh, at these high level international agreements that are largely done for political, you could even say cultural reasons, that people cannot accept the full reality, that there is no app for our problems. <laughs> there is no technology. We, In fact, we have all the technologies we need. What we've got to do is let go of what I would, you know, to paraphrase Albert Einstein, he used it to describe nationalism, but I would use it to describe, you know, capitalism. It's the measles of humanity. It's an early adolescent stage of our evolution. You know, why is it that we're at an age now where our young people in particular, but most of us, it's easier for us to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Why, how and why and what ways has our cultural imaginaries of the future been thoroughly colonized by, there has to be capitalism. Why? We've lived in pre-capitalist societies before. We've lived in non-capitalist societies. I'm not saying they've all been perfect, but for me, there is no credible, sustainable future that is based on carbon or indeed on capitalism and that we need to start thinking of new post-capitalist futures. Mm. So um, to wrap up then, I was going to ask you, is it too late? But we've had a lot of optimism. So I want to ask you what what you would uh, recommend to people as like individual actions they could make. You've already suggested less, uh, eat less red meat. And I think I'd like to ca- uh, add as well, if you're going to uh, make sure it's A, not factory farmed and B, as sort of raised as close to your house as possible um, because, you know, then it's not traveling very far. Um, so, yeah. Absolutely. Try and uh, reduce, obviously, the standard ones, uh, air travel. I mean, again, another advantage is another advantage of the pandemic has been that for those who are lucky enough with jobs that can, you know, be done remotely, we've seen, well, do we really need to be traveling uh, as much? In fact, you can be more productive. You're not wasting time in airports and travel and so on. So airline travel would be one as well as your daily commute. 
you know, many people, uh, I don't think I'm going to go back to the office now. I, I think both companies have seen the advantages of people being able to work from home, but also many employees have said the stress of, of you know, paying for car parking, looking for car parking space. So I think travel is another area that you can absolutely reduce your impact. But for me to go back to a theme that has been common in what I've been saying, become active citizens. I don't really care what you do. Join Extinction Rebellion. Vote for a party based on its policies on these issues. Use your voice as an investor. I mean, it's a shame for me as an academic who've been, you know, working in this area for 30 years. I've been a part of a campaign to get my own pension scheme divested from fossil fuels. Uh, but, you know, it's been it's not been successful. But again, it's to see that this is an interconnected issue. There are many areas you can work on whether it's individual action, you know, reducing your red meat consumption, don't fly less. But it's also ones that can, you know, help on the financial system, which I, I would say is about divesting from fossil fuels and engaging in, in, in a, a conversation with your fellow citizens, your family, about the necessity of, of a planned retreat from fossil fuels. So I'm absolutely convinced we're at the beginning of the end of the age of, of fossil fuels. It ain't going to happen overnight. It's going to have to be done in a planned manner. And above all else, just to finish, it has to be a just transition. There has to be a way in which nobody is left behind. So that even displaced fossil fuel workers in Aberdeen or in coal-fired power plants, they have to be given compensation, retraining. And that's where I think you begin to get people uh, on board with you, that this is something that we all can benefit from uh, and not something that you grudgingly do because some hippie on the telly tells you, some academic like me tells you, or some egghead scientist. This is actually in all our interests to make this low carbon transition as just as possible. Mm. Well, that's a, that's a great note to, to finish things on. Um, is there anything you would like to, to plug um, before we finish? Now, with just one book, if people are interested, just on this more uh, philosophical, even anthropological dimension of, you know, futures, is to, it's a really short, beautiful book by a philosopher in America. I think he's based in Chicago called Jonathan Lear. And in 2006, he wrote a beautiful book called Radical Hope, Cultural Devastation uh, in, in the Context of the Modern World. I think that was the subtitle. But it was a philosophical anthropological analysis of what happened to one of the First Nation peoples in North America when they were enforced to go onto reservations. They lost basically the, the, the entire practices and cultural horizon in which their realm of meaning. So they lost everything. And it's a fantastic study of what, how does a culture and, and a people face the, uh, the threat of its own extinction? To go back to something we mentioned, you know, a moment ago, that kind of possibility that the ways of life that we currently have may not be possible in the future. And essentially, it, it, it's about recognizing that the end of the world as we know it is okay. It's not the end of the world. It's just the end of the world as we know it. We just need to move on to something better. Yes, to quote R.E.M., so, um, yeah, thanks. Thank and I feel yeah. fine. <laughs> but so, yeah, thanks. Thanks, uh, John. It's been, been an absolute pleasure. No problem at all. Thank you, Josh. Good to see you again. And great to see our graduates have good, fulfilling lives. Yes. <laughs> all right. Take care now. Bye bye. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, Please subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list. And don't forget, my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. You'll find the link in the description below. Until next time, thanks for listening.